Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. Hello and welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 39, Medical Oncology with Nurse Practitioner Vanessa Brink. Y'all, chemotherapy is a systemic treatment, and what that means is that the treatment or the medicine goes throughout your entire body, kind of like scanning up and down, up and down your entire body. I like to think about it like going in and hunting any hidden or renegade cancer cell and attempting to squish it before it grows. This is different than a localized treatment like radiation. Chemotherapy, being systemic, goes throughout your entire body. But not everyone needs chemotherapy. And we'll talk today with a nurse practitioner in medical oncology to better understand when chemo is typically recommended and what women can expect when they go. Keep in mind, like always, y'all, this is not a diagnosis. We are just speaking in very general terms, and our purpose is to educate and inform. To know what's in your own best interest, you need to talk with your own medical provider. And again, keep in mind that every cancer is different. There's estrogen, progesterone, positive or negative. There's HER2 positive or negative. There's size. There's location. There's lots of different things to consider, and since every woman's body chemistry is different, their medical history is different, and so forth, it is a highly individualized plan, and you need to speak with your own provider. Now, let's say you are recommended for chemotherapy. Keep in mind then that chemotherapy in and of itself is not a one-stop shop. It's not just, hey, I need chemo, let me go and get that one item. No, there are different cocktails, if you will, that can be administered and at different doses. And a lot of what is recommended is, is again, it's individualized. It's based off of you and your own flavor of cancer. Here to talk about the basics of chemotherapy with us today to help settle any nerves that people might be having prior to their treatment and to have a better idea of what to expect when you go To talk a little bit more about this today, we have with us a nurse practitioner in oncology. Vanessa got her BA in psychology and a minor in sociology at Loyola University, New Orleans. She later got her BS in nursing at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette and became an oncology nurse with Summit Cancer Care in Savannah, Georgia. She went back to school, got her master's in nursing as a family nurse practitioner from the Georgia College and University, and she is currently working with Summit Cancer Care in Savannah, Georgia. Vanessa is passionate about systemic health care reform and community advocacy. She even used to run a local radio show. And here today to talk with us a little bit more about what medical oncology is all about and what women can expect when they go, we are pleased to welcome Vanessa Brink. Well, welcome, Vanessa. We are so happy to have you with us today. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Joyce. I really appreciate you inviting me on this show. I think it's important what you're doing. Well, thank you. 
Thank you. Well, let's, I guess, jump in and start talking a little bit about what women can expect with chemotherapy. This show is for women that are diagnosed with breast cancer. And so they can either have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. When does chemotherapy come into play with treatment? So that's a good question. Um, And the answer to that is, honestly, the research on that is changing all the time. I actually have a very good friend who is also a nurse practitioner who underwent breast cancer treatment. They found a spot on her mammogram, which is commonly how how these are found. Mm -hmm. Then she went to the breast surgeon because of the questionable mammogram. The breast surgeon then did a biopsy. And depending on that biopsy, that's very much what determines whether you get chemotherapy or not. And in her situation, she was HER2 positive. And uh, she had one positive lymph node. Well, at that time, the guidelines showed that she was a candidate for chemotherapy and that giving her standard chemotherapy gave her benefit. And that, you know, after she would have a lumpectomy or mastectomy when her chemotherapy and radiation were over, that her risk of recurrence would be lower mm-hmm. if she got chemotherapy. Well, halfway through chemotherapy treatment, those guidelines changed. So at that time, she was, I think, a couple cycles in, and she honestly wasn't tolerating it well. Guidelines ended up showing, okay, there's new data out, and it shows that the type of cancer you have, you know, where it was, the size, the the histology, the aggressiveness of it, you don't have benefit from chemotherapy. Right. So the take-home message from that is you know, things change. Things change constantly depending on the data we get. Fortunately for people diagnosed with breast cancer, breast cancer by far is the best researched of all cancers. Thanks to people like yourself who have raised money for the Susan G. Komen Foundation and have put money into this research. Right. And I think that it's a it's a good thing that science is always improving and changing. It's it's not a bad thing. This can be looked at with a very positive lens of okay, well, the guidelines may have changed, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. It means that science is improving. Like we as a society are progressing with where we are and what we know with treatment, and that's huge. Exactly. That's exactly right. I would not be surprised if I was a person undergoing treatment to see, and I've seen this a lot, the physicians I work with do this all the time. A patient will come in and and we're looking at their situation and they will pull up a guideline right there Mm -hmm. in the room. They'll open up the computer, pull up NCCN, you know, we'll go through the algorithms right right there. And and the reason is because of that, because things are changing. But I think that's important too, because I know that when I went to the oncologist for the first time, they, what is it called again? They whipped out that, that, the guidelines, what are the, what's the name of that guideline? NCCN. The NCCN. Okay. They whipped, they whipped that out. And I found comfort in that too, knowing that there are guidelines. It's not like you go in into the office and a doctor is willy-nilly saying, well, I think this or mm-hmm. I think that. It's There are these standardized care, basically. These are guidelines that oncologists across the country use. Right. And when they change, it's because new research has come out. Exactly. It's not because a particular doctor is changing their mind. It's because we're constantly learning and improving science. Exactly. Exactly right. And 
I mean, rapidly. So if you're looking at like the 1980s, uh, I have friends who were oncology nurses in the 80s and the early 90s. And back then you can count on both hands the kind of chemo that we had for people. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the specialty of oncology didn't come out until <laughs> in the 80s. There yeah. were hematologists is what these guys were. And then they started treating chemothera- uh, cancer with what, with what they had, with, with, with what we knew. And at that time, and I mean, through the 90s and 2000s, a lot of cancers were like that. You know, it's like, well, we have these treatments. It's kind of up to the oncologist. Do I think this patient would benefit from it or not? And younger people, unfortunately, the answer was always yes. Give it to them. Give it to them. Um, And then that's when in the 2000s, that's when we started having seeing people actually surviving cancer, which we didn't used to have. Mm-hmm. And then we started seeing the effects of what happened to them. Right. Emotionally, physically, mentally. Right. Well, and we'll get into some of that stuff as the podcast goes on. But let's talk a little bit more about when chemotherapy might be recommended, like right now, knowing that it, it can change. Right. Um, and where it mashes up on the timeline, too. So yep. there are different ways. If you're diagnosed with breast cancer, there are different layers of treatment. There's yes. surgery, and then there's different kinds of surgery. There's radiation, and then there's also chemotherapy. Correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that it's typically surgery first, then chemotherapy if needed, not always needed, but depending on their situation. But there's also always exceptions to that too. That's a really good question. And it's a tough one to answer. And the reason is because everybody's cancer is all different. And again, those guidelines change constantly. Right. So there's a lot of factors that go into the decision on whether to treat first treat with chemotherapy first, which would be called, the term for that is neoadjuvant therapy. Mm-hmm. So you would treat the person first. You, you, they have a tumor or a, a small spot and you would monitor it, mm-hmm. right? And you'd kind of see how it did after chemotherapy. Right. And then the person would have surgery. Right. The other option would be to do surgery first and then chemotherapy afterwards. And the decision on what is best for the patient, there's a lot of factors with that. So we talked about before how the first thing that happens is a biopsy. Biopsy is incredibly important because breast cancer was the first cancer where we kind of figured out that tumors have different mechanisms to grow. What I tell my patients is tumors are lazy. They're like cheap lazy cells. They're not real breast cells. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not doing their job. All they want to do is reproduce and kill you. And they're going to find the easiest way to do that. Regular cells have mechanisms that tell them to reproduce and also to tell them to stop reproducing and also to destroy themselves. We don't need you anymore. Right. right? When their life cycle is done, that's what they're supposed to do. Exactly. Apoptosis, right? Right. Cancer doesn't have any of that. It's not going to follow the rules. So what we learned, uh, again, because of people like yourself who have raised money through the Komen Foundation and for research for breast cancer, is that certain tumors use different cues to reproduce, right? In breast cancer, we have the HER2 new protein. There's, you know, a woman can be her two positive or negative. That makes a difference in these decisions. Um, Hormones, right? Uh, Breast cancer, uh, another cancer is prostate cancer, Mm -hmm. uses hormones as a trigger to keep reproducing. That would be your hormone status. And now we have certain percentages of how much of that tumor is using hormones. So that gives us a really good tool in the future. So we've we've got hormone status. We have the the estrogen progesterone. So if somebody hears I'm estrogen progesterone positive or negative, that's what you're referring to there. Exactly. And we find that out on on biopsy. So estrogen status, HER2 new status, Mm -hmm. uh, the size of the tumor, 
the number of lymph nodes involved, mm-hmm. the size of the lymph nodes. Right. Uh, where it is on the breast. <laughs> right. There's <laughs> the so factor. many factors. Exactly. To exactly. Um, certainly genetic factors, uh, like yourself, you're BRCA positive. Right. Uh, that, that definitely factors in the decision. Right. Exactly. And right. like there are so many different layers to consider, which is why women really need to go and have this, hey, this is me conversation mm-hmm. with their provider. Exactly. And lay it all out there. How does this stack up with all of these variables that we're considering? How Mm -hmm. does this make my story? Exactly right. And then from there, once we get all that information, sometimes guidelines are very clear. Yes, absolutely. She would benefit from chemotherapy. And there are algorithms that will tell us exactly how much (laughs) from chemotherapy. You know, if, if we gave you chemotherapy... Your chance of reoccurrence has dropped from 40% down to 14%. Right. I love, I love hearing these numbers. Like, I'm a, I'm a numbers girl. Yep. So when, when I can hear your rate of recurrence is blank, and yep. I see that that's low, then I'm, then I'm okay. One. Okay, so sometimes it, it's, a, it's a definite, hey, this Absolutely. is going to work for you, or that's not going to work for you. And right. then sometimes there's that gray area in between. Exactly. Yep. So case in point, so there's something I want to talk about, the Oncotype test. So yes. my understanding is that they do the biopsy, they find out that it's in the lymph nodes. If you have lymph node involvement, mm-hmm. then you get chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And that lymph node involvement was, I, I think it was two millimeters in size or greater. Mm-hmm. If it was no lymph node involvement, then you wouldn't. And this was back when I went through things. I don't know if the guidelines have changed since then or not. But the precision with the biopsy is so great that mm-hmm. they can find less than two millimeters. And that, and so for me, I had what they called a micromat. And that's when the oncotype comes into play. Yes, exactly. So there's a company that they have done so much research on the cells of somebody's tumor and the likelihood of those particular cells of reproducing outside of that tumor, right? How sticky, I like to say how sticky they are. Right. <laughs> and that that is remarkable. So we send a piece of that tumor to this company and they give us a score. And based on that score, it gives us a very good um, number. An indication of how successful it'll be. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it's, it really is a, a great tool. I mean, right. I've had uh, women, we were sure, we're like, oh, she's going to need chemo. The oncotype comes back very low. And right. it's like, you know, we'll probably do more harm. To her. give a general idea of the scoring, if it's high, then that means that chemo would be beneficial. Beneficial, yeah. And if, it's, if they get a score and it's relatively low chemo would not be as effective for their particular cancer. Right. And it does, like, it gives you a percentage. Right. So, and and that, you know, sometimes if you're on the cusp or say it's an older woman, say maybe in her mid-70s, and she's like, she's got maybe some arthritis and some diabetes, and it's like, look, for a couple percentage points, I don't know here. So you got to really weigh it all. Exactly. What I like to say to people here, too, is when they're running the Oncotype test, they're doing it on the tissue that's already been removed. Mm -hmm. They're not cutting anything else out of you. (laughs) Right. To run this oncotype test, it's already removed and they run the tests on that tissue. Yes, exactly right. And that is precious, precious tissue. Yeah. So uh, like I said, there's all kinds of new companies coming out with all kinds of really neat genetic testing and they're coming up with markers and mutations that we don't have treatments for yet. So it's it's an exciting time. Right. And they're getting cheaper and cheaper. That's fantastic. Yes. Let's talk a little bit more about chemotherapy itself. A lot of people think that if they, okay, let's say after all is said and done, Mm -hmm. their age, their cancer, how big it is, where it is, the number of them, all of this stuff considered. And when the verdict is out, let's say that they're a good candidate for chemotherapy would be beneficial for them. Mm -hmm. 
Even that is not a one-stop shop. It's not just chemo being one thing. Correct. There are different cocktails of chemo. What, tell us a little bit about the different kinds of chemo. What is there? So chemotherapy, what it is, is uh, anti-neoplastic, meaning it kills cells that divide quickly, right? All of them head to toe. And the reason why we started giving people chemotherapy for cancer is because we really didn't have anything else. Cancer is something that your body made. It right. has your DNA in it, right? And one of the mistakes that happened, other than this one nasty cell just deciding to go crazy, is that your immune system didn't recognize that, right? right? Your body thinks it's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of people, they don't feel bad with this mm-hmm. weird thing growing in them. If you had something from out of body come inside your body, like a bacteria or a mm-hmm. virus, your body doesn't like it. It recognizes it immediately and you feel sick, right? Mm-hmm. And also your immune system fights against it. So when we give people chemotherapy, what we do is we try to prevent these cells from growing anymore, full well knowing that we're going to inhibit other important cells in your body from growing, Mm -hmm. but you're a nice big organism and you can survive. You will come out of this chemotherapy, your body, your good cells will regenerate and this cancer hopefully will not. That's the goal. It is. And the reason why chemotherapy works for cancer more than the rest of the cells in your body is because they grow so quickly. They Mm -hmm. reproduce so quickly. So we know from biology that there's different points in a cell cycle. There's six of them. And different chemotherapies target cells at different points in that cell cycle. Oh, this is a biology thing. (laughs) See, I thought the answer was going to be chemistry, and I'd be like, I don't know that, but this is biology. I'm intrigued. So tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. So they found early on, the first people that successfully were treated with chemotherapy were children with leukemia. And what they did basically was they threw the kitchen sink at these kids. Mm -hmm. And anything that they had that was an anti-neoplastic, that they found to be an anti-neoplastic, they would just try. Mm -hmm. They figured out that if you give different anti-neoplastics that target cells at a different point in their cell cycle in a different way, if you give them at the same time, you have a better chance of killing more of that tumor and preventing more of that tumor from reproducing. Hmm. So that's why we use a combination. It's called combination therapy. So that's why somebody, when you say combination therapy, somebody might get say cytoxin and, and adriamycin right right you might get two of them at the same time because you will get two, two of them at the same time okay. yeah yeah and that's how they work yeah. work best right and then um you know after that particular regimen is adriamycin and cytoxin mm-hmm. it's a very very difficult regimen that's the red devil one red devil yeah, yeah. And it's called the red devil because it's <laughs> red it's bright red you pee red when you get it and that, devil because it ain't fun is what i hear no it's it's horrible it's like drinking a four bottles of very cheap tequila yeah if, and if you think about it, it's the same principle you know yeah. your body is like poisoned right and that's why you feel bad your body doesn't understand what's happening yeah you it's telling you that there's something you're ingesting that is hurting you. You're, right. you're taking in a poison. And that's why you feel nauseous and sick and everything so, else. So there's different kinds. There's mm-hmm. the... For people that are HER2 negative, right? So you, they don't express the HER2 hormone. That, that doesn't make it grow. Right. Right. Exactly. And for people that are triple negative, that don't, that are estrogen receptor and HER2 negative, um, you get that, you would get that regimen, either adriamycin and cytoxin. There's another regimen that has the taxane, taxotere, and cytoxin. 
the first one, the adriamycin and cytoxin, you would get four of those, mm-hmm. and then you would move on to get taxanes. You would get a 12 weeks of taxanes. So you actually end up getting three kinds mm-hmm. of chemotherapy. And that's my understanding would be because if somebody is triple negative, then that means that they can't have that added layer of treatment of those hormone blockers, inhibitors, because their tumor isn't being essentially fed by estrogen and progesterone. So therefore that layer of treatment isn't going to help them. Exactly right. So hit it with all the big guns in chemo so that because they don't have that added layer. Yeah. And you know, people that are actually estrogen receptor positive, they they could get this treatment. Absolutely. It kind of depends on how the variables stack up with them. Right. All triple negative means is that we have less uh, weapons right. for this. E- e- chemotherapy is what we have right. right now, right? We discussed earlier that we're still looking for ways to cheat these cancer cells. Right. Always. Yeah. Always. Yep. So that, that that's that basic regimen. If you are HER2 positive, you'll get Herceptin and there's a new drug called Progetta that is added to chemotherapy. And that regimen is carbo, but that's a different, you, you get a platin for that. You get taxateer, so one of the taxanes and a carboplatin. Mm-hmm. And then you get the Herceptin and the Progetta. Um, Progetta is new and it's an added protection. What I like to say is like Herceptin is like wearing a raincoat and the Progetta is like an umbrella. Okay. So what it does is it blocks those cells from using the HER2 new protein as a trigger to reproduce. There are cells in our body that that use that naturally to reproduce. Um, they have between five and ten, I think, million or something receptors on the on the outside. And then if uh, you're HER2 positive, those cells they have like a hundred times that amount of right. of receptors on the outside of them. So if you cut off that mechanism, you know the good healthy cells that are supposed to be doing what they're doing that use that mechanism to reproduce can still use other ways to reproduce because they're smart, right? right? And they know what they're doing. The cheap, dirty cancer cells <laughs> shut down because right. that's what they—that's the only way they were using to reproduce, right? Okay, so let me see if I can oversimplify this a little bit here and see if I've got this down. So a woman's diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. is not just a one thing. Exactly. Lots of different variables. That biopsy you talked about is critical in knowing what their path moving forward is going to be. Mm-hmm. And it can look several different ways. They examine the estrogen progesterone status and the HER2 status. Mm-hmm. And they can have... Chemotherapy, there are different kinds of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. They get a combination treatment, and I, I didn't know that. I think that's awesome that the reason for that combination treatment is because they target different parts in that cell's life cycle, mm-hmm. and which regimen they get is dependent on several variables. One of those could be if they are triple negative because they don't have those added weapons, like you said. Yeah, but, yeah. The, the biggest one determining treatment would be the HER2. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let's talk about some side effects of treatment. And again, it's going to, every person's body is different and it's going to depend on the cocktail too, but in Mm -hmm. in general, what may be some things? Okay. So when I give people chemotherapy education, first of all, I think it's really, really important that people have kind of a picture of what's going to happen to them. First of all, their schedule and then how they're going to feel. What I tell people is that, you know, like I said before, your body doesn't understand that this cancer is not supposed to be there. So the treatment we give you is going to make you feel bad. And the other thing I like to tell them is like, you know, the day of chemotherapy, you're actually going to feel pretty good. Yes. 
right? And the reason is because we give you some steroids. <laughs> we give you some steroids to decrease the after effects. And then we give you some anti-nausea medicine. And to so lessen the shock factor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and people don't, you know, I'm really mad at all these Lifetime movies where they have like people getting chemotherapy and they're like in chairs, like vomiting, right. you know, and it was like, oh, like while it's running through, um, right. that's a lie. So um, anyway, people get chemo. And what I like to say is that it's kind of like a tornado going mm-hmm. through your body, right? It's in and out quickly. And if you happen to get the red stuff, the adriamycin, you can actually see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, after you get the red stuff, you can go to the bathroom later in the day. You could watch it coming out. It's right. bright red. And it clears up by the evening. So chemo is in and out of your body in a couple of hours, right? Okay. It's all the damage <laughs> that it leaves behind. That is what makes you feel icky. Exactly. It's like a tornado going through mm-hmm. a town. It's quick. Well, it takes weeks and weeks for that town to repair, right. to build up all its structures, right? And if you think about the damage that chemo does in your body, uh, all the cell death happening, your body needs to now... Okay, first of all, it's going to protect you. It's going to try to protect you. So that's where the nausea comes in. You're going to feel really, really fatigued. What I tell patients is that gerbil wheel on the inside is going because you're, it's got to do all this repair work. First of all, the trash men have to come. You know, your body has its cleaning mechanisms to get rid of all these dead cells. Then it has to try to repro- you know, assess the damage and right. reproduce. So it's usually day three. Day Later. three when you have that the bad fatigue and you're feeling pretty bad. And then also people can either get constipated or they may have diarrhea. I'm like, opposite ends the spectrum so here. That's but. a good point. Constipation a lot of times comes from the anti-nausea medicine that we give you ah. on chemo day. It's really good stuff, very strong stuff. But anything that keeps food down will also keep it uh, up. From, from coming out <laughs> the other end. Got yes. it. Yep. So I think the big takeaway I was told was no matter what you're feeling or what your symptoms are, have that open, very candid conversation with your doctor because how it affects people may vary as well. Exactly. I, I give people a rundown of what I usually see. And then I always add that, you know, whatever chemos they're on. Um, with the taxanes, I always, always, my biggest thing with that is peripheral neuropathy. That is something, me personally, I've been battling <laughs> for my patients because it's a long-lasting effect of chemotherapy. So explain, for those that don't know what that is, explain what that is. So taxanes, and if you have breast cancer, you will probably get one a class of this drug. It's a plant toxin. Um, it actually comes from the yew tree uh, in California. It's a coniferous tree. One of the taxanes comes from the bark of the tree, and the other one comes from a needle of a tree. And we give it to the person. They can have some skin toxicities, but what I don't like about it is it can peel that layer of myelin off the tips of your nerves and expose the very tips of your nerves and your fingers and toes. And when nerves are exposed, they kind of crumble and, and, you know, they, they get ill and that can cause, you know, like diabetics have numbness and tingling. We call it like a stocking glove Mm -hmm. effect. So it starts at the tips and goes down. It starts Mm -hmm. at the tips of your feet and goes down. Sometimes we can, and and that is a dose modification reason. I, I don't like my people having to live, especially my young people, having to try to work and live in constant burning pain in their hands and their feet, mm-hmm. right? So we really need to, and, and there are guidelines for that, how to tweak uh, doses. And the way that we expect this to go nine times out of 10, does we have to tweak something somewhere. Right. And I don't want, I don't like people getting nervous about that, thinking that they're getting some inferior drug right. or that... A dose modification is going to change. Very important point because I have heard people say, I don't want to say anything because I want to make sure I kill it. 
Okay, well, just because you have that open conversation with your provider doesn't mean that they're still not going to help you make sure that that thing gets as dead as it can possibly get. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's so important that people understand that. These doses and these regimens are based on your height and your weight, and that is it. Right. <laughs> we don't know what you've been, your body's been through in its life. Everybody's metabolism is different. We're learning more and more. We, we really don't have a good handle of that and how people's bodies react differently to things. We're starting right. to, but we're not there yet. So what I tell people is, you know, it's going to take us some time. Usually the first treatment's the worst because we throw at you what we give everybody else or, you know, what we give people in your situation. It's not tweaked, right? Right. It's not tweaked and we don't have the proper, we we try to give you support medicine for nausea or whatever you need, but who knows what's going to happen to you. So usually the second and third go a little better because we know how to handle it. And what I just tell them is that, you know, it's going to take us some time to find the right dose and the right schedule for you. Exactly. Highly individualized. Yes. Now to combat the neuropathy, I've heard about people doing cold stuff. What is that? Yes, there's some new data on that. So i had done quite a bit of research on this. And the last time I did research was about two years ago. And we still did not have a good science-based way to prevent peripheral neuropathy other than dose reduction or dose delay. I have some anecdotal things mm-hmm. I use for people. I've had a couple people tell me that taking a vitamin B, B mm-hmm. complex helps a little bit. I've looked at those studies. They're not they're not good. I mean, it works right. as good as a placebo. I personally send people to acupuncture. Mm-hmm. I found great benefit from that. Yeah, I've I, heard I good really things has. from that too. Yeah, I really, really have found good benefit from that. The cryotherapy is new, and I've had people use it and tell me that that it kind of works. So the thinking on that is that if you put your hands and your feet in cold, while, remember I said chemo is in and out of Mm -hmm. your body quickly, that while that toxin is circulating in your blood, there's less of it reaching those extremities because it's uh-huh. it's cold. That's the logic there. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yep. Um, I really like cryotherapy and it honestly works really well while people are getting adriamycin in their, you know, if you chew or, or suck on something cold, mm-hmm. while people are getting adriamycin, it really reduces the risk of mucositis. Oh. Yeah. That's interesting too. Yep. Okay. Well, and then also the one of the biggest things that most people kind of think of when they think of chemotherapy is hair loss. Yes. Yep. Um, And breast cancer, every single regimen, you have hair loss. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not true for other cancers. Right. So that's why with breast cancer, you know, a bald woman is, that's a sign of breast cancer. I have found that that is a big emotional issue. Oh, dear Lord. Yes. Yeah. I had a harder time losing my hair than I have losing my breasts, which is crazy to say out loud because I'm never going to get my breasts back, (laughs) but my hair will grow. It's not crazy. and, but you know what's funny is I am not the only woman that has said that. No, too. absolutely like not. I, that's apparently a thing. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and, I, and I don't really know the reason why. I don't know if it's because you look in the mirror and you immediately see mm-hmm. something is wrong with me, whereas the other you can kind of hide a little bit. This is what I think. Right. <laughs> and, you know, as humans, when we're born, um, the first thing we look at is each other's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And we're very – humans, we, we conquered this planet because we're tri- We're like bees and ants. We work with each other. We make quick judgments on each other, right? Mm-hmm. Our personality, um, you know, all kinds of, you know, our, our sexuality is important. And, and think about how important our hair is to that and right. our eye, things like our eyebrows. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and I think as women, especially, right. I've had a couple men 
be really, really upset about losing their hair. I've had a couple men with really nice, well-cured beards that have had it for years. And that's their personality. That is who they are. That's what they know. That's what they know. That's when they look in the mirror, that's what they see. This is me. Yep. And yeah, it was was definitely an emotional moment. I do have a tip for that. Um, What I tell my patients, you know, especially if you have young kids, and I will never forget the day I was in first grade. My father always had a big red beard and a big mustache. I came home and he had shaved it off and I wouldn't talk to him for like a week. It scared me. I didn't like it. Very early on, I've had a patient or two tell me that, you know, they lost their hair and they'll go see their grandchild and that child is a little little recoiled. Mm -hmm. And boy, that will really make you feel bad. So my advice for that is if there is a child involved, have them watch you shave your head. Yes. It really, have them involved in the process so there's not a shock Yes, absolutely. I have two little girls and when I had, so I'm kind of a control freak and the Mm -hmm. idea of not having control over anything Mm -hmm. that was going on in my life really bugged the heck out of me. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that I took control was, is I knew that, okay, if I'm going to lose my hair, I want it to be done when and how I say. Mm -hmm. So I made an appointment to go and have after my first chemo infusion, before it started falling out, I went and had it shaved. And I had kind of done my hair cut in stages so mm-hmm. that my kids could see that it was, you know, shortening up too. I kind of gave them another roll of mm-hmm. jobs and they helped me pick out um, one of my girls was getting ready to have a birthday party and she was in love with um, Poppy from Trolls. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, hey, I'm not going to have any hair. What do you think? Should I do this? And she's like, yes, you totally need that one, mom. So when I came in, I had Poppy's hair and she was just ready to party. It's like, great. Yeah. So, like it. so other side effects, people may get brittle nails. Their nails may want to come up off of their beds. What advice mm-hmm. do you have for that? What I tell people usually is to sew, um, you can use like some tea tree oil mm-hmm. on it yeah. um, or something that soothes it, like real weak uh, salt solution. Mm-hmm. Garlic, I heard, is okay with it. But that ew, that plant toxin is not. Can, certain people, I've, I've watched them lose their nails. Right. The majority of people have not seen any changes in their nails. So that's one of those might, might not happen. Yeah. And it depends on the person. Yeah. Exactly. So for me, it didn't happen right away. It wasn't actually until after I was done with all my chemo that I really noticed it. But one of the things that I found was helpful if I kept my nails cut short, mm-hmm. Then and my toenails too, like because you don't want them like getting caught or something Ooh, and pulling, and pulling up, right? <laughs> so if you keep everything cut really short, then it's not going to stop things from happening, but it might lessen the probability of getting caught and pulled up on something. Yeah. Yep. I also heard that some women, when they're getting their infusions, that they might have this metallic taste. I didn't actually experience that myself, but mm-hmm. one other piece of advice that I heard somebody say was eat something sour. It was actually a friend of mine that was getting treatment. Every time she would have that, whatever it was that she was getting, was getting that metallic taste. Mm -hmm. She would have a few Sour Patch Kids in that moment. So in my experience with the breast cancer treatments, the the red stuff, Mm -hmm. I've had a couple people taste it. But what people taste the most is honestly the flush that comes after the Uh, port access. And the reason is because it's a a bit of saline. It's mm -hmm. a good bit of saline going through your body. And it goes, it's like an internal smell. It goes like inside your little, you know, 
nasal whatevers and and they instantly get like a oof yeah and it's not for most people it's not a big deal anybody who's gone to have surgery you know you know that it's just like a it almost smells like a strong alcohol or whatever taste mm-hmm. and it can come out in your mouth but for people who after that sensation comes you're getting poison right <laughs> you start getting a bad connotation right. with that smell I have patients that walking into the cancer office, they start vomiting. And I call it the bad Chinese food or bad tequila, right? Right? So, you know, you go to a a place with a strong smell or a strong taste, like an ethnic restaurant or a... um, Your sense of smell is very powerful. It's very powerful. And if you eat food that instantly makes you vomit and feel bad, the next time you smell that, you're going to start... Your body's going to be like, "Uh uh-uh, no, no, no. There's certain alcohols (laughs) that after college I can't have anymore for that very reason. So similar (laughs) similar idea here. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so you mentioned the port. Mm -hmm. So help us understand what that is for people that don't know and then Mm -hmm. what you mean by flushing it and how important that is. Okay, so a a port-a-cath is an internal, it's an implant and it goes just under your skin on your chest and then there's a line, it's like a little reservoir with a little piece of silicone on top. There's a line that goes into eventually your jugular vein by your neck um, and this is all inside your body and then it ends up dumping into the your superior vena cava, which is the biggest vein in your body, right? And what I tell people is like, you know, it's inside your body. So you can shower and swim or whatever. And when you come into the office, we will clean it. We put a little numbing spray on it and it's a bullseye. We just put a needle in there and we can pull blood out of there. We can give you your chemo in there. You have to have that. If you have definitely the adriamycin, the red stuff, you cannot get that in a peripheral vein. It will seriously scar and damage your veins mm-hmm. and then the extent of the chemotherapy that most people get you ought, you really ought to have a port cath people that end up getting it you know it's kind of a weird thing you're going through so much with diagnosis and everything and you know you're going to get chemo and then somebody tells you well now you're going to have an implant mm-hmm. you know you have to go through another surgery just to get this implant just and it's just sometimes it just knocks people on the edge right. like wait a minute what but i always tell people Almost all my patients really love their portacast, right? right? So we use that for chemotherapy. When people are done with their treatments, we usually usually recommend that they keep it for at least a year after treatment's completed. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because that's the time where you're most likely to reoccur. Right. And, and if you do, we would hate to have to put you through another surgery, right? right? Flushing portacast, that's a really good question. Times have changed on that. So when the portacath was invented, the manufacturers of the port said every four to six weeks has to be flushed or else it will clot. And that means like flushing sailing through it to... To make flush sure it's it all working and everything. Right. It, it, it requires like an office visit at a treatment place where nurses are trained to access ports. So like survivors every month or six weeks, they would have to go back to the office to get it flushed through. They would have to access it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's data that's come out in the last few years uh, in these big chemotherapy centers that have shown that flushing a port about every three to six months is as effective as doing it about every four to six weeks. And actually, you expose the person to less infection wow. if you wait longer, yeah, if you point. go like on every three-month intervals, right? right? When drugs first come out, they have like the physicians or the PI, you know, the uh, how you prescribe it, how it's given, and that's it, right? right. And that drug company is not going to run more trials on that. 
big centers over time, Herceptin is a good example of this. When Herceptin came out, I, I think still on the instructions, you're supposed to pre-med people with Benadryl, 90-minute infusions. Well, the big centers gradually like, you know what? People don't need this Benadryl. Right. So we got rid of that. So now women can drive home after mm-hmm. their Herceptin, right? Now it's down to 30 minutes. They find, yeah. you know what? After all this time, they look at all the data, it really doesn't make that much of a difference, right? Yeah. Things change based on what these big centers and um, you know people that are studying um, to be nurse practitioners or to be physicians or to be um, oncology, you know, physicians assistants, they do the research on this stuff. And they're like, hey, look, we don't, we, you know, we can make life easy, lives easier right. for people. So that, the port yeah, we, the practice I'm with, I, I finally, you know, I convinced them and I spoke to the physicians I'm with showing them this data, like, hey, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. let's, let's extend the interval of port right. flush. Hmm. Good point there about yeah. it, lessening the risk of infection the longer intervals you have. I didn't think about that, but that's a good point. Yeah. I want to circle back for just a moment on side effects. Yes. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed, and I don't know if this, I'm just throwing this out there because mm-hmm. I don't know if this is something that other women may experience or not. And I didn't actually come to realize this until after my treatment was all completely 100% done. And the only reason why I noticed it is because I journaled Great. throughout the whole time. Yeah. But what I come to find out is that it was about a week and a half after each infusion when I would hit this really big emotional low. It was like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Something would happen. I hit this big emotional low. And it felt very chemical. It wasn't yeah. something that I could say like, Joyce, just snap out of it right. and be happy already. I mean, I was always mis- positive. And mm-hmm. this felt very... Like, I, I couldn't do anything about it. It was just very chemicals, the best way I can describe it. And then I watched a TED Talk where a neuroscientist was on there, and she talked about how, from her perspective, it made sense. Mm-hmm. Because, as you mentioned before, chemotherapy is targeting those fast-growing cells, like mm-hmm. the cancer. It's trying to kill the cancer. And right. then that's why you lose your hair and, you know, and, 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 and. From this neuroscientist perspective, she had said that it made sense because those the hippocampus is responsible for your mood, mm-hmm. and if it was affecting those neurons, then it made sense that mm-hmm. you might have an emotional moment then. And so it just made me wonder. Yeah. Um, and I was curious what your perspective was on chemo having an effect on mood in that manner, if that was plausible. I mean, obviously yeah. research would need to be done, but yeah. I was just curious what your perspective was. That's like really interesting to me. I, I think that we've not paid as much attention as we need to, mm-hmm. to neurochemistry and Western medicine. We deal with chemical, right? That we give you a drug, we take labs, we look at Uh, we quantify chemicals in in your blood and we give you chemicals, right? We don't pay a lot of attention to electricity Mm -hmm. in our bodies. Uh, Like our, you know, our heart, you have to shock somebody to get them going again. Our nerves function electrically as well as chemically, right? So that's really interesting. Um, And I wonder too, how much, like, I want to watch that TED talk because I wonder if she knows anything about chemo brain. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good one. So I've I've seen a lot of of people emotionally. Definitely, I've seen mm-hmm. that more so though. I've seen the chemo brain, right? And, it and used for to those be like that a don't myth. know, yeah, <laughs> no, definitely a thing. But but for those that may be new to this terminology, what is chemo brain? Chemo brain came out because uh, people undergoing chemotherapy started getting real forgetful, right? It's like how they say pre- pregnant brain, like, but it's chemo. Exactly. That's exact. Yeah, that's a good comparison there. And you know, there was a lot of it. People blamed on like. Well, you're just emotionally, you know, you're going through a lot. That's why you're forgetful, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, 
on. Oh, there, more and more data is coming out. Like there's a there's so a connection there. I've had patients tell me. I mean, patients that have been professors tell me they can't read. They can't read. They'll start reading these avid readers. They'll start reading a book, and by the time they get to the next paragraph, they've forgotten what they've read what in they the beginning. Read. And it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's frightening to people, especially mm-hmm. my older people. Right. So I have to reassure them. Look, this is chemo brain. It's okay. It's a thing. You know, you're not you're not getting dementia. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's all right. You're not crazy. It's it's a real thing. I think one of the things that can make it scary is because it's a new layer of. I don't want to say normal, but for lack of a word yeah. to insert here, it's, yep. it's a new something that, you, that you're that you just not used to. And now it's suddenly happening to your body and you're like, well, hang on a second. Is this going to be the new me? Like, what is this? What's going on? Right. And then not knowing this version of yourself because it's not who you were before, mm-hmm. that in and of itself is scary. Yeah. And just to talk to a little bit about that, I always try to, to remind my patients, especially my survivors, Look, you're not the same person that you were before you went through this, right? A soldier is not the same man or woman that they were when they went away to war and came back. They're different. They've changed for the better a lot of times. You can't grow if you don't change. So I, I find a lot of frustration and a lot of depression in survivors because they want their old lives back. They don't want people to look at them differently. They don't want uh, to have some of these side effects and emotional scarring that they've had. And it's like, that's true, but we don't go back in time. We can't, you know what I mean? Some of it is kind of being like, we have to grow. We have to kind of look, look forward. I find people, especially that are control people. One of my patients that had the biggest issues with that, she was a helicopter pilot. And she's used to, she, she needed to know exactly. And when I kept telling her, look, we don't know. I, don't, I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen. She just couldn't. Because in her world, it's like, that's life or death. I, mm-hmm. I need to know exactly what's right. going to I will kill people in this helicopter if I don't know exactly, you know. Right. So in her case, she's like, well, why can't you do that for me? <laughs> right. Why can't you tell me exactly what's going to happen to me? And the answer is because humans are not computers. Right. Chemotherapy is not software. That's an excellent way to put it. I like to, I, I wrote something I'll, I'll share with you later, but mm-hmm. it was titled Mosaic. Mm-hmm. And the idea yeah. is that you might be this beautiful, put together stained glass something or other, mm-hmm. and then cancer happens and yeah. you're hit with all these treatments. And what happens is that that shatters in that, that emotional scar, that physical scars that you feel is happening when you're walking over these shards of glass that just fell in, into the rubble around you. Mm-hmm. But how are mosaics made, right? Right. You piece together, and it's not about recreating that exact thing that you had before. Exactly. You create a new beautiful whole. And that's something that, I mean, I know, believe Uh me, I Uh know how hard that is. I Mm -hmm. still struggle with it. Mm -hmm. But learning to let go of what you can't control and focusing on those things that you can and accepting that who you are on the other side isn't going to be who you were in the beginning. And that doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't mean you like cancer. Right. doesn't mean exactly. you like what you went that through. That it was a good thing that happened. Right. Exactly. We don't have to like that thing that happened to us right. to still be okay with the person that we're going to be on the other side. Exactly. I think that's beautiful. And, and I love the way you said that. The other thing I find with my survivors, especially immediately after treatment, is there's a mismatch. There's a mismatch of what that person is feeling and what the people around them think they should be feeling and doing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Right? So it's like kind of like that soldier that comes mm-hmm. back from war. And, you know, people's lives that whole year or whatever, when he or she was gone, they're going through their regular lives, right? So that person comes home and they're so happy. You know, right. oh, we're so happy you're back. Aren't you glad you're back? You know, everything's back to normal. And, and that, you know, that person that came back is like, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what, ha- I'm not sure what happened and right. I don't know why. And it's not that they're not happy to be back. Exactly. They still own that, I'm happy to be back, but something's different. Exactly. And, and I need a little bit of time here and a little bit of, you know, understanding, right? right. You, you can't expect a survivor of cancer, a person who has just completed all their chemo and breast cancer to come out and be all smiles. I mean, you can tell us more than anybody, Joyce, yeah. right? I've had a lot of people with depression because the people around them are like, you need to be grateful. You need to be grateful Mm -hmm. and you're not grateful that you survived Mm -hmm. and you're not happy and you're not, and it's just like, we. I've had had people tell me that because they've heard this from their close people around them that they start to shut up. They put this shield around them Mm -hmm. and then that makes matters worse Worse. because it's like a pressure cooker. It's Mm -hmm. all inside now. I can't let it out. But then I've also had people, and I know I fall into this camp too, like, it may not be your loved ones that are saying that, but you're saying that to yourself. Self, yes. Like, uh, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't be this. Yeah. I shouldn't be that. Maybe it was okay to be feeling these things in the midst of it, but now I'm on the other side. I should be grateful. I should be, you know? Yeah. And here's the thing. It's not that we're not mm-hmm. grateful. Mm-hmm. It's just that, and I think you and I had a conversation about this once before too, is that once you've reached out of that fight or flight, I'm mm-hmm. on survival mode, mm-hmm. and you get to that line, wherever that is in your own journey, mm-hmm. where these emotions come flooding, right. it's because you're now safe to feel. Right. That's a really, really, really great point. Um, and I, I like how you were talking about that in a fight or flight, because your life is threatened constantly, right? right? Uh, while you're undergoing chemo and and, yeah. and, and um, surgery, and there's so much uncertainty. Right. Um, and that humans hate uncertainty Mm -hmm. we've conquered this planet because we can plan for next year we know what's around that we're pretty sure what's around that corner right right and when we don't know that we do not we are out of our element completely and through the cancer continue cancer therapy continuum there is so much of that and you're right you're right so when it's all said and done i I often see people come out of that like what happened what was that Right. You know, fight or flight, you're putting one. We're very good at fight or flight. We put one foot in front of the other. We go to battle. Humans are excellent at that. Right. It's what happens afterwards. Exactly. And then I think that it's important for anybody that's listening that maybe they've walked this walk and this is where they are Mm -hmm. to a couple things. One, to recognize that that is normal. Yes. Part of this journey. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with you when you are feeling those emotions. So give yourself permission to be human. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Allow yourself to feel. This is what anybody that's referred to me, I always tell them. You are entitled to feel whatever you feel, whenever the hell you feel it. Yes. You you are human and that is okay. Right. I know that I personally have struggled with that. Mm. So... But recognizing that that is truth and then knowing that even though it may be part of you, it doesn't define who you are either. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I always give the analogy of cookie dough. Have mm-hmm. I told you about my no, cookie dough analogy? No. So I'm never going to eat a raw egg. <laughs> I think that's just nasty. Who does that? Not me. Right. But I will gobble up the whole darn butter <laughs> of cookie dough, right? right? Well, I'm not, you don't get cookie dough by just eating those good moments, those mm. semi-sweet chocolate chips, right? Mm. 
I'm not defined by the chocolate chip morsels or the egg alone. I'm not right. defined by just the good or just the bad. I am it all folded in together. Exactly. And that's the way life is, right? Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's all kind of mixed together. And we are not owned by one or the other. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I try to drive that message home, especially for my stage four patients. Mm-hmm. I've had them get into ruts where they're like, I'm stage four. I'm stage four. I'm going to die. I'm stage four. And I have to tell them, you're not stage four. You're Susan. That's This, this is right. who you are. You know, and just live your life. Right. Same thing with my survivors who are done with treatment and they're worried and upset about cancer coming back. The fear of recurrence, it's a real deal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's like, like I always tell my patients, how much of you worrying about this reoccurring? How much of that do you think is going to protect you? from right. it actually <laughs> reoccurring. Right. I would prefer, and I'm sure your body and your mind would prefer too, if you spent that time and energy living your life, you Absolutely. know, whatever that might be. And that can be hard to make that shift when the emotions are so Absolutely. intense. But that, I think that goes back to giving yourself that, that permission. Yes. That it's okay if I feel this way, but it doesn't mean that I'm always going to feel this way. Yes. And to recognize. So I read um, Olivia Newton-John. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar, but she, um, she had breast cancer mm-hmm. and then has just had a reoccurrence. And I think she's stage four, but she's mm-hmm. written a book, Don't Stop Believing. And yeah. it is a really great thing because she talks about her cancer mm-hmm. and she talks about, you know, the treatments and the things that she has been able to put out into this world as a result of that journey that she's went through. Right. But then she also talks about, you know, her rise to stardom and she talks Mm. about Greece and she talks about all this. And so what I love about it is it kind of puts this whole package deal, right? Exactly. Like this is life. Like she is not just that one moment that she experienced. She is all of it. And the same thing with any of us, right? Even our stage four metastatic breast cancer patients, like you're not defined by that diagnosis. I like what you said. You're Susan, you're Bruce, you're whoever you are. (laughs) Like that is who you are. Right. Right. I like that. Exactly. I want to circle back just for a mm-hmm. second because I want to make sure that we talk about white blood cells, mm-hmm. um, what it is that they do and why chemotherapy, the effect that it can have on them. Your white blood cells are your, it's your part of your immune system, biggest part of your immune system. And it's, you know, it's a line of your blood that fights foreign things that come in and actually things that your body make that it doesn't like. <laughs> right. White blood cells are divided into five different kinds of white blood cells. In chemo worlds, in cancer world, we pay very close attention to one line of that neutrophils, right? Your neutrophils are a type of white blood cell that is the first, very first line of defense. Other white blood cells, they need a little bit of time to recognize what's happening in your body before they can respond to whatever they need to respond to. Neutrophils are the first thing. They're the the first line. They're like the front line of defense. Mm -hmm. Um, When those are low, you're wide open to infection. And you can get an infection when those are when those are critically low. You can get an infection, and if you start getting a fever, you can fall into septicemia within a few hours, mm. within a couple hours. I used to be a nurse in the hospital on an oncology floor, and they would come in with neutropenic fever, and that was a serious emergency. You know, a fever in a regular person is not a big deal. You have a nice immune system. We know it's gonna work. But if we know there's only there's going to be two days before anything responds to your body, you're wide open to infection. So we need to get you into the hospital and get you some IV antibiotics, antifungals, anti-whatevers. In breast cancer specifically, some drugs really do knock down your bone marrow production. So there's kind of two issues happening. Remember I said that chemotherapy kills cells that divide quickly, right? Your bone marrow. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is where your blood is produced your and your blood, white blood cells your white are blood produced. cells yeah. little right. so there's two things happening um, it's paused a little bit your bone marrow is paused production for a little while and the other thing is whatever white blood cells it does produce at that time are not going to function well and so we keep a really good eye on that. Usually when you get chemo, we bring you back like a week later. That's called your nadir, N-A-D-I-R. It's an important word. And what that means is the point where we expect your blood counts to be at its lowest. So that's the point when the person is most susceptible to infection and septicemia. Right. So sometimes they can get this medicine that will essentially jumpstart the production. Yeah, that's good stuff. So yeah, exactly. What it does is it tells your bone marrow to go ahead and mature white blood cells. Like go ahead and mature them and push them out into the periphery. Those are good drugs and they're getting cheaper. I am no medical expert here, but I would imagine that there's different kinds. I I actually had one. The kind Mm -hmm. that I had was a battery operated one. It was Elasta. There's commercials for that. Yes, there are. I called it my (laughs) battery operated sticker. And basically, they put it on right after I had my infusion. And the whole point of it is it's going to administer medicine mm-hmm. so that it goes into your bone marrow to say, chop, chop, we need more white blood cells now, yes. get them rolling. Yep. And the cool thing about the battery-operated sticker is that you don't have to go back to the hospital to get an injection. Like, it just, it's on a, a detonator, yeah. right? <laughs> like, it has a, a little a time clock and, right. and, it, and it knows when to go off. Funny story about this. I had it put on, and, w- and when women can feel that going on, it feels like um, a rubber band. Snapping you. Snap. Yeah. And people ask, oh, does it hurt? Because it sounds like it's not going to be pleasant. Mm-hmm. To be honest, the finger prick that they do yeah. when they get blood, that mm-hmm. hurts me worse than this did. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the anticipation, because you're going to hear like a series of tick, 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 and you're like, oh my God, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and then snap. Anyway, so that happens. Well, then I don't remember how long, 24, 28 something hours 27. later. 27. 27 yeah. hours later, <laughs> that's when it's supposed to, quote, detonate where it's releasing the medicine. Mm-hmm. When it releases the medicine, it doesn't hit. I was concerned, like, is this going to hurt me again? Is it, gonna mm-hmm. flick? it doesn't flick again. You just um, starts releasing the medicine. You won't feel anything then. Mm-hmm. But you will hear the ticking. And I had forgotten about it. <laughs> so I'm sitting. I guess it beeps, too. That's mm-hmm. what it is. It beeps. And then it'll tick. And so I'm sitting in my kitchen and I hear this beeping and I'm like, what is going on? And I'm looking outside. Is there a truck? Like, did I have a timer set? Like, what is in my kitchen that's Uh going off? And then then it stopped. I was like, meh, oh well. And then I sit down and hear her ticking and I'm like, I don't have a watch on. (laughs) It took me forever to realize, oh, my new Lasta just went off. But yeah. Those are real good drugs. Like I said, um, the reason for that is because you cannot give – that's the one you got is a long-acting, right? Mm -hmm. So it will cover you ostensibly for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. And you cannot give that drug on the same day that you give chemotherapy. Gotcha. You have to give it the day after. That's why Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I will say, and I don't know if this is true for all of them, but I would imagine that it is because Mm -hmm. its purpose, again, is Mm -hmm. to jumpstart white blood cells, Mm -hmm. which are produced in the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And so I would feel intense bone pain. Yeah. My bones hurt. Yeah. They hurt. Yeah. The good news is it didn't last long. And I also, I like to visualize things. So I would picture this medicine going in and it was hurting me because they were going into the bone marrow going, you need to get cracking. You, we need more of you. Right. And to me, that was a good thing. Yeah. Because it meant that my body was doing what it needed to do. 
Did you take some Claritin? I had heard that yeah. too. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you said that because yeah. that was going to be one of my questions as well. Claritin yes. is supposed to help with that. It is. So I found that out from a friend years and years ago who was undergoing chemotherapy. Bone pain was, was an issue, big issue with that. And then he called me. He was like, hey, did you ever heard of taking Claritin? You know, he goes, I, I can't, he actually had lymphoma and he was in, in severe pain and he went into the doctor's office and the nurse gave him a Claritin. He said within 30 minutes it was gone. Yeah. And I had heard that anecdotally. So yeah. that is one of the things that has been spread from cancer center to cancer center. There's not data on it. Right. <laughs> There's right. no data no, on it. No, but I've, but it works. I've, heard it, I've heard it too, like a member of some online support groups mm-hmm. and I've heard women on there saying it too. Oh, hey, yep. try this. Give this a shot. Yep. So talking about the white blood cell issue real quick before we move on, women that are wanting to have reconstruction done. Mm -hmm. Reconstruction can happen in parallel with chemotherapy so long as their white blood cells are at an appropriate level. I suppose so. You know, I'm not, I don't know what's going on in plastics these days. And that, that tends to change. I do know that timing... I'm ho- I hope that there's good research on that is critical with chemotherapy because you're not going to heal well mm-hmm. after on and during chemo. Right. Same. And I know radiation is its own animal. Right. Tissue right. after it's radiated has certain windows you can deal with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, with the, how that all mashes up on the time scale is between radiation and plastic surgery as well. Yeah. That's another whole another whole ball game there. Right. But that's what I had heard. But again, that would be a question that women would need to talk to their plastic surgeons about. One thing that I don't think a lot of people realize this as well, and I wanted to touch on for just a quick second, is pregnant women can also receive chemotherapy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've given um, breast cancer treatment, lymphoma treatment to pregnant women. They're really sweet, beautiful, healthy kids. No problem. Because it doesn't cross through the placenta at all. You don't do it on the first trimester. I know that. And I just wanted to make sure that women knew that if you are pregnant Mm -hmm. and diagnosed with breast cancer and you go in and you speak to your oncologist and they say you may be a candidate for chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. that that's also a thing. Absolutely. Women, they can get tumors while they're pregnant. And if you think about it, it's a hormone, right? Most of those are ERPR positive. Mm -hmm. Um, Pregnancy is like pouring fuel on a fire. Right. For tumors that are ERPR positive. So I, I want I want to make sure women know if you you know, even if you're pregnant and there's a lump on your breast, I, I've had a couple go into their GYNs and be like, Well, you're pregnant, you know, no big deal. You know, your boobs are weird, whatever, it's not a problem. You're breastfeeding, no problem. You know, you have weird Oh man, just <laughs> check it. You know, after it goes on for a couple weeks or seems to get bigger, definitely keep you know keep it up. I've had a few who have had chemotherapy through the ends of their pregnancy, even after their kids born. You know, right. keeping up with it, and they actually do pretty pretty well. Right. That was something that I didn't even know prior yeah. to me having entered this cancer world. <laughs> I had no idea that was a thing, and I was like, I think that's important. Women should be mindful of. Yes. What are some suggestions for things that women can do to help manage? right after. So, okay, so we know about infusion day and yep. they come home. You're yep. not going to be really run down that first day. Exactly. Then it starts to hit you. What can women do here to help themselves? What I tell people to do is, um, you know, you're going to feel, tell them you're going to feel like you drank a bunch of te- cheap tequila and, and you have to treat it the same way. You got to get out of bed. <laughs> you yep. have to drink, take your medicine, eat. Yes. My people that do the worst are the ones that stay in bed. My people that do the best are the ones that have young kids or Mm -hmm. animals 
or a spouse that is is needy, you know, mm-hmm. that it's like, you don't have a choice. You got to get up. Or, or people that have to work, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have a choice. They honestly do better. So I tell people to drink, you know, drink plenty of fluids, um, take your, take your medicine, take your anti-nausea medicine, do it. Um, right. Take your constipation medicine. I can't tell you how many people I have that's like, well, I don't really take medicine. It's like, look, I just gave you the most powerful drug yeah. <laughs> that's ever been invented. Now you take medicine, right. take it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> call exactly. us and call us and let us know if it's not working and we will find something else. We have plenty of stuff we can use. Right. Once in a while, chemo does hit people the wrong way. You are not a weenie if you absolutely cannot get out of bed. Maybe that just wasn't your dose or something, you know, wasn't working. Call us. Call us. Don't lay in bed not eating or drinking for days. Right. That is contraindicated to life. Right. And you will spiral down. Right. That's when it goes back to you need to be upfront and honest. Lay it all out there with your provider so that together you can work on an optimal treatment. Exactly. And move towards getting it all put behind you in the best way possible. Exactly. Exactly. That's something that I made a point to do was to make sure that I drank a lot. Of Good. Wa- not, okay, I, let me, I played that back <laughs> in my head. Trace We're talking water. about water, table, <laughs> <Yeah>. fluid. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I had a lot of um, fluid intake mm-hmm. and then I tried to make sure that I listened to my body and rested when I need to, but I, I also made myself get out there and go yes. for a walk. And yep. I didn't care how slow I was. Exactly. I used to run prior to cancer. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to go out there and run mm-hmm. in the midst of going through all this, but just getting a walk, moving, exactly. getting my body moving and paying attention to myself. Exactly. What does follow-up care entail? Okay, that's a really good question, and that honestly depends on what kind of what you went through. Right. Usually, what we see is after you're done with all this therapy, and you go into you know some people the plastics, plastic surgery sometimes can linger for a while depending on what happened. We usually try to see you about every three months. If you start anti-hormone therapy. We'll see you after you start that because there can be some issues with that. I saw you interviewed Dr. Pam Godry. Mm-hmm. Um, she could probably have better info on what uh, what anti-hormone therapies do to women. They can have some serious effects that really interfere with your life. So we like to see people after that and make sure they're adjusted on the right therapy with that. And then we will just watch you. There is, there is no regular scanning that is done with breast cancer. Um, data shows that it doesn't really help us. I would tell patients... Keep up with your surveillance, with your mammograms and your breast surgeons. So keep your appointments with your breast surgeons and your radiation doctor, if you did get radiation. And then oncologists, when you come to see oncologists, we'll do a breast exam if it's been a while or if you haven't had a mammogram recently. We kind of do a head to toe and kind of check in with you on what's happening. What you can do is take care of yourself. You exercise. Exercise number one. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell people to eat a lot of plants, drink a lot of good water. I tell people to do something about their stress levels. I end up starting a lot of people on antidepressants for a little while. Um, I always, always, always recommend your support group to people. Always. Yes. No, I think it's so important because of what you said before. Um, You know, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. And I've never gone. I always tell them I've never gone through what you went through. I can sit here and lecture you and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> right. right? You need to talk to people who have gone through what you went through. Yep. Because we, we do, like having having walked that road you, and you talk to people that have been there, 
we can be authentic, but then also recognizing how and where you can go mm-hmm. from there. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to live in that low moment forever. We get it. Oh my gosh, do we get it? Right, right. But right. it doesn't mean that when you fall to the floor that you're going to stay on the floor. It's mm-hmm. And it's not about avoiding that pain and that fall that happens in life. It's about rising up again afterwards. Exactly right. Yep. I also I also try to tell people that we love humans. We love loops. Um, we love routine. Our brain doesn't like to go outside of what it normally does. And when your brain gets in that loop of looking for threat constantly, our brains love to do that too. They hone in on threat and they obsess over it. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get out of that. Right. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy. You, it's like a person who's a cigarette smoker. You go to put something in your fingers to smoke. It's like you have to replace it with something, something. else until your brain gets out of its loop. It's easier said than done. <laughs> yes. Easier, easier said, than, said than, done. than done. But... Possible. 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 Possible, yeah. Now, okay, you wrote an amazing paper helping cancer patients cope with uncertainty and illness through, is it pronounced Qigong? Qigong. Qigong. Yes. Uh, Program, developmental program. And I'm super excited about this because, Mm -hmm. as we talked before, that emotional element is very much a part of this. Tell us a little bit about... Um, your findings in your paper. So that paper is based on a theoretical framework by a woman. She was a a nurse and she got a PhD in psychology and she is very famous for this theory that she came up with. And it's a theory of uncertainty and illness. And she found that people would become very depressed and they would become obsessive because of the lack of control. Because of Illness is, un- yeah, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen, right? right? And when you're talking about me and my body, mm-hmm. that puts it into a whole new perspective. Exactly. A whole new level of uncertainty and scariness. Exactly. And we're talking about things that can cause pain, mm-hmm. things that can um, change the way you look and feel forever. Mm-hmm. It can change your ability to reproduce. I mean, it can change your relationships with people. Right. So that, you're right. You're absolutely right. So... Using that theory, I explored different facets of cancer care and the antidote to that anxiety and that stress that we get from not having control over what's going to happen to us is putting ourselves in a mind frame where we accept the chaos of life and of the world. You know, we look around and, you know, we think we have all this control over everything. We're humans. We love to build things and make things and plan, but do we really, you know, do we really have all this control? So my religious people, what I like to tell them, the, the best thing is, you know, the phrase, give it up to God. Just, he's in control, let him do it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we'll focus on, you know, what we can do here, our interpersonal relationships and, right. um, you know, doing the jobs that we can do. My people that aren't religious tend to kind of already see the chaos <laughs> of the right. world, right? And they kind of already believe in disorder and that there's not a a mechanism, somebody controlling everything and, and that there's not an order to things. So those people I try to coach to embrace that. But uh, the best antidote to that is to do activities that put you in the moment. Mindful meditation, prayer is amazing. Qigong uh, was the tool I decided to use. And what Qigong is, is an ancient Chinese method of deep breathing and movement in meditation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, spelled Q-I. G-O-N-G. And what I usually do with my people that don't have a good mechanism of uh, mindfulness or, uh, you know, another thing is is running, exercise. You're Mm -hmm. kind of in that moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's great. 
Um, I will pull up on YouTube certain Qigong exercises, just breathing, deep breathing, mm-hmm. a chair, and that, that really, really works. <laughs> I know. You know, yeah. I, I keep being told, like, how important breathing is, and it's not just to sustain life, right? Like, it's right. not just this quick inhale, you yeah, know, yeah. Let, me, let me get oxygen <laughs> and let it out and, like, move on. Come on, people. No, like, yeah. there's taking those deep inhales and exhales, it helps you Mm-hmm. It helps you get that oxygen that you need mm-hmm. and to be able to better accept the moment. Exactly. Yep. It just gets put back into perspective when something that, that is this unsettling rocking your entire world and you feel like um, a hurricane's just come through and you're mm-hmm. like, I have no control over absolutely anything. Okay. Well, and then mm-hmm. I'm like, what are the steps to breathing again? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I seem to have suddenly forgotten how to do that. But and in your paper, you were talking about how Qigong, that it's it's not about controlling that chaos. Yeah. Which is huge for us control freaks out there. And y'all are, people listening to my podcast know I am by all means a control freak. Well, that's sometimes a good thing, right? right? But it's about peace and acceptance. And I think the critical piece here is that you can move to that radical acceptance without liking that thing that was terrible. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's a really good point. And learning to let go of what you can't control. Yep. Focus on what you can. Just because you let go of the things that you can't control, it doesn't mean that you're giving up by any means. Right. I used to think, like, I need to get as many things under control and, like, plan (laughs) and have this all in my grasp so that I can be strong and I can do it and I can make it through. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is if I let go of these big things that maybe aren't in my control Mm -hmm. and I can focus on these other ones, that doesn't mean that I'm weak and it doesn't mean that I'm giving up and it doesn't mean that I'm, quote, letting go of the important things in life. It means Mm -hmm. that I'm taking control over that which I can control. Exactly. And there's a big shift there. There is. um, And I also want to talk a little bit about our culture here in the United States. I've traveled to other countries um, and I've treated, not not for cancer, but treated other people in other countries. People in this country have a huge expectation of control of their own, (laughs) you know, what's going to happen to them and what they're going to do. And we... We believe that the harder we work and the more that we do, the safer we will be, right? Mm -hmm. That's not really true. In the other countries I've gone to, people are kind of like, you know, it's very important that you take an hour. They they cherish that. Like for Mm -hmm. lunch, you have to sit, take your time, you have to eat. Everybody understands that. Right. right in this country, it's like no, 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 no. you got to go, work go, through go. lunch. Right, right. <laughs> you got to keep Yeah, That's yeah. Right. Um, you can multitask. Chew Let's while you're walking. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. like my patient, that was a helicopter pilot. I had to be like, look, just let this go. You know what yeah. I mean? You're doing more harm here, trying to get all this. And and it took a while, but gradually, she right. did. Yeah, you have to. Well, it takes us all a little while. Like yeah. I, I know. <laughs> I'm a hard-headed patient myself. Like I'm trying, trying to get that under control. I think I'm in a better place at being able to accept that now than I was. But I think that it's also important for people listening to realize that it's okay to not always be okay, and that that doesn't make you weak. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I really, really appreciate that. One of the terminologies that I really hate that has been associated with cancer in this country is it's a fight, right? So we fight cancer. We got the boxing gloves up. You know, these women are women warriors are fighters. I I really hate that terminology uh, because there's a decent chance of recurrence. And I have a lot of patients that present in stage four, right? So who are they? I mean... You know, are they weak? Did they lose a fight? We don't like that. You know, in this country that we're very uh, confrontational with our verbiage. And, and, you know, that's kind of our personality, right? We're fighters in this country. Well, 
I prefer when patients start saying that, when my stage four patients, I say, you know, my patients that have diabetes, right? Or non-cancer patients that have diabetes. Do we say that they're fighting diabetes? No. We say they're living Living with with diabetes, right? Mm -hmm. They haven't lost any battles here. People with diabetes, they have to stick themselves with fingers three, four times a day. They're taking medication that give them awful side effects a lot of times. They're in doctor's offices very, very frequently for the rest of their lives, right? Right. So what I say to them is that, like, put yourself in that mind frame there. Live, live, you know, you're Susan. (laughs) You're not this. Live. Yes, exactly right. right. You didn't lose a fight. You know what I mean? And and going to these treatments, and I do get the, you know, the warrior mentality because you are getting beat up really physically. I think the the warrior, the warrior mentality comes about when we're feeling like we're in that fight or flight yes mode. Mm -hmm. But I like what you're saying here too, because like when you step back and you get more of this aerial view mm-hmm. of it that it's like um olivia newton john in her book and when she mm-hmm. puts this all together she kind of talks about how it's a blip in time mm-hmm. so if you can imagine like this line going across the page straight line being your life right mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden adversity hits be it cancer or whatever mm-hmm. then it's like these waves going up right. and down they're really 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 intense well if right. you're following along on that line and you see these waves you might not be able to see past it they seem yeah. intense yeah. right mm-hmm. but then when you get past those waves there's more like another line keep going and sure maybe you have another adversity happen Mm -hmm. another blip in time and then another line if you can step back from those waves from that blip in time and look at it in its entirety what all does your life have right it's not just that blip exactly the entirety yep yep i totally agree with that and going back to the what do you have control over i just have to add this in here too (laughs) because i think this would be helpful for metastatic patients. Mm -hmm. It was helpful for me. I'm not stage four metastatic, Mm -hmm. but I think it it helps give a little bit of control to everybody. This goes back to, I had a a meltdown one day. Absolutely. 100% meltdown. Sure, you're Um, loud. And I thought, I I listened to this song. It was Randy Travis's song. came Mm -hmm. on the radio about the three wooden crosses. And Mm -hmm. I let the lines sink in. I guess it's not what you take when you leave this world behind you. It's what you leave behind you when you go. I let those lines sink in. And I thought, what do I want to leave behind? Mm -hmm. And I thought, in a metaphorical sense, snow. Because if each act of kindness was like its own snowflake, right? Unique in its own beauty. When we increased those, then we would get to see the snow. It's not Mm -hmm. made in one fell swoop. It's made by all of these little things in our life. Mm -hmm. So for anybody that is struggling, maybe they're stage four, maybe they're not, Mm -hmm. to focus on what can you do now? What is one snowflake? What is one piece of your life that you have control over that you can do right now and focus on that and live that and own that yes. and be that. Yep. Exactly. Yep. I totally agree with that. I think that's beautiful. Live, you know, live. Vanessa, this is my last question. My favorite one. What is one thing that you'd like women say diagnosed today or tomorrow to walk away from this podcast episode knowing? That this is your journey. It is your body and it is your quality of life. It does not belong to anybody else. Not your children, not your parents, not your spouse, not your sisters, not your best friend. They can certainly help you with your journey, but you are the one to dictate what that is. Don't let anybody tell you what you should and should not be doing, how you should and should not be feeling, which doctor you should call when, um, you know, which expert you should call on, which website that you should be, absolutely should be following, which diet you should be following. Don't listen to them. You dictate your own 
care you do with your doctor with your physician certainly you live live how you want to live go through this journey how you you would like to you know if you start crumping down if you need emotional help ask for it tell people exactly what you need tell people exactly how you're feeling and don't feel bad about it right it's your journey yes it's your life yep it's your mind it's your body your soul and therefore you're the one that should be living it so even though you walk your own walk through life, it doesn't mean that you have to do it alone. It doesn't mean that you can't take in other people's support. But yes. at the end of the day, it's you. It's your decision. Yes, absolutely. I've seen a lot of stress come from patients trying to please everybody. And you're I'm never going to please you, everybody never else. Will. No, <laughs> you're never not. Will. So at the end of the day, knowing that what is it ultimately about? It's about you, yeah. right? Yep. yep. So your quality of life, what you want and how you want to live. Right. Is that you don't owe anybody anything. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so thank very happy to so have you. Thank you so much, Joyce, for everything you're doing. You're a very, very big tool in my tool belt of ways to help people. Well, thank you. And thanks again to all y'all at home listening. I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Until then, remember that together we weather this storm. You are never alone.